Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I mentioned this before, but this past summer uh, in fall, I had the privilege of coaching my oldest son's peewee football team. And it was a special year because this year we had the chance to go and play during the halftime of a Packer preseason game, the first Packer preseason game. And so we we typically start practice the second week of August, but because of this Packer preseason game, we ended up starting the last week of July. And so for three weeks, Three hours uh, a practice, four practices a week. We were trying to get these kids ready to go and play a scrimmage at Lambeau Field. And it was quite a feat, I'll have to say. I mean, some of these kids had never played football before, and so we're teaching them what's offense, what's defense, what's the one hole, three hole, five hole, stuff like that, A gap, B gap. Like, they didn't know any of this stuff. Um, we didn't have anyone who'd ever played quarterback before, so we had to teach someone how to play quarterback. We had people who, um, who just who didn't know the positions. We had to find out what position was good for them. We had to teach them the plays, how to run the plays, how to run their position. And we had to do all of this in the course of three very short weeks, all in preparation for this one event coming up. Uh, As it got closer, we actually laid out for them, we were told certain guidelines that the Packers gave to us for playing this football game. They're kind of interesting, actually. You wouldn't know this from the seats, uh, but they give us a couple guidelines. Like, first off, um, no huddling. Like, you need to memorize your plays so that you can go fast. If you score a touchdown, go do a Lambo leap. People will lift you into the crowd. And the third thing was don't play defense. Like, don't don't go across the line of scrimmage and and sack anyone, which is kind of ironic because it's the same way in the NFL anyways. But... Uh, but those were the three rules. They wanted lots of scoring, lots of touchdowns. So the, the day finally came, and we gathered at our practice field. We loaded on a bus, came over to Lambeau, had a tailgate, and then went and sat underneath the stadium. Um, they had bleachers in, in like Mark, Mike McCarthy. Oh, he's sorry, he's gone. But uh, in his parking spot and in the other coaches' parking spots. And so there, there, there is us, like 80 kids, 20 coaches, just, you know, overjoyed to be there and energetic. And so when we're down below, we're, we're trying to calm the kids down and then we're stretching the kids out. We're reminding them of the plays. We're reminding of the rules that they gave to us, what not to do. Um, we actually took Sharpie and wrote the plays on their arm just in case they forgot to make sure they knew what they were going to do. And then as it approached halftime, we lined up in the tunnel about halfway. And the, 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 the halftime happened, and so the Packers start coming in. They high-five the kids, go into the locker room. And so there we are in this, in this huge line, uh, all these kids and coaches. And there's kind of this moment of quiet. And then you hear from the front someone say, let's go. And so the kids start going, you hear their cleats, and it's a walk, and then it's a jog, and then it's a run, and then you hit the field, and it's like, ah! 
And that's just us, right? The crowd doesn't care. But we're like going crazy. We're so excited, right? All the training, all the preparation, all the coaching was now over. It was, it was go time. Uh, we stood on the sidelines while they did their thing. This morning, we reached a pivotal turning point in the gospel of John. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at, or a few months, we've been looking at Jesus' farewell discourse in which he's teaching them and preparing them for a moment. Uh, Jesus has been with these apostles for three years, again, all in preparation for this moment that is coming in John chapter 18. As a matter of fact, if you go back all the way from Genesis chapter 3, God has been preparing his people for the moment that comes in John chapter 18. It's, it's go time. The teaching is done for the most part. The preparation is done for the most part. Now it is time to act out everything that they have heard for thousands of years. The things God spoke about and taught about were now about to be carried out. So if you would please open up to John chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. Uh, In the red Bible, in the seat in front of you, it's page 904. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. Um, You just have to read it. That's our rule. Again, this is taking place right after Jesus' farewell discourse and high priestly prayer. John 18 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. Let's pray. Lord, as we dig into this passage today, it seems like we are walking on holy ground because everything that has been taught in your ministry, everything that has been taught in the scriptures of the Old Testament is now coming to fruition. And so God, pray for us as we engage with this passage, a passage that may be very familiar to some of us, that we may engage it with fresh eyes, fresh ears, fresh hearts to understand how great your love is for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the hour has come. 
The mystery of the gospel of God from eternity past is about to be acted out. It's go time in the garden. And what we see here is is a character of Christ shining through. There are three things we want to look at today. We want to look at the plight of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the passivity of Jesus. His plight, his power, and his passivity. First, the plight of Jesus. If you're not familiar with the word plight, Merriam-Webster defines the word plight as difficult or precarious situation. And that is exactly the situation Jesus finds himself here in today's passage. Look at verse one with me. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So just to give you a visualization of what's going on here, uh, if you look here, this is the, the map of Jerusalem in that time. And so here you have the walls of the city. Here you have the temple. Um, here is a, a guess of the upper room. That's why there's a question mark, because it's a it's a big guess. <laughs> but here you have Jerusalem. Over here you have the Mount of Olives, this whole range here. And in the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Mount of Olives was, was raised up. So was Jerusalem. And so between these two uh, high points, there was a valley called the Kidron Valley. And it actually plays a lot of important uh, role. It's quoted, it's talked about a lot in the Old Testament because there's a lot of significant things that happen there. But the Kidron Valley, for the most part, is a dry creek bed. Uh, when it rains a lot, water would gush into it and then it would swell up. But for the most part, it is a dry creek bed. Now, as you look at this picture, just kind of this, this right corner of the, uh, of the Temple Mount, just uh, pay attention to where that is because I have another picture coming. So Vlad, if you want to go. So here's that, that right corner right there um, of the Temple Mount. And so over in this area is probably where the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane was. This whole thing is called the Mount of Olives because it used to be filled with olive trees, but the Romans came in and they wiped it out and used it all for firewood after the time of Christ. And so, but up there is uh, the Mount of, uh, excuse me, the Garden of Gethsemane. If you want to go to the next slide. Uh, this would be maybe the scene from the Garden of Gethsemane of Jerusalem. You can see the walls of Jerusalem there and of the temple. And you can even see a modern day road there. But this is where Jesus, Jesus would have been probably in this, a location like this. And what's interesting, as you read through the passage, one of the things that you'll see is it said that they entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that probably indicates for us that this was private property, um, that it was probably a fenced off or walled off garden that belonged to a rich uh, person that lived in Jerusalem or in the community around it. And so this would have kind of been like, you know, someone's lake house, right? So like if someone says, hey, go use our lake house to have a retreat, you know, with the elders or whatever, it's kind of like what this was. Um, Jesus went there frequently with his apostles for a time of, of rest, for a time of teaching, of care. Um, and so, so this place was a place of, of, of deep intimacy with Jesus and his apostles. And so that makes this tragedy of Judas's betrayal even worse. Because not only is Jesus, Judas betraying Christ, but in one of the most intimate places they, they ever commune together. Uh, try to think of a modern day example. It would be like if, if a husband tells his wife that, that he's going to divorce her and decides to do it where they got engaged. Right? That would be 
insult to injury. This is what is happening here in the garden. And so with that, with that information in mind, I want to reread these verses because I think it's helpful uh, to have this background. Verse 1 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, if you have ever seen a movie that tries to depict this scene of Judas's betrayal, often it is Judas with about 20 guys, right, with clubs and torches and things like that. But biblical scholars say that that the amount of men that came with Judas was anywhere between 200 and 1,000 men. Uh, They had officials of of the chief priests that were there, but you also had a lot of Roman soldiers who had filled the city of Jerusalem because during Passover, uh, Jerusalem was, was... would overflow with Jews who made a pilgrimage there and they had to come in to keep the peace at such a major event. And so you had all of these soldiers and guards that came to arrest Jesus and they came, very interesting, they came with weapons. And you're thinking, why, why do they need weapons? Well, they, they probably, number one, they probably assumed that Jesus was going to try to escape. Um, many times before, if you remember, they tried to arrest Jesus But he escaped, and the scripture said, because his hour had not yet come, if you remember that. But the other thing is they were afraid of Jesus, which is amazing because he was was a carpenter from Nazareth who preached about love and peace. But he was also the same guy who calmed the storm and cast out demons. And so they, they, they come this Hundreds and almost a thousand people come to arrest Jesus because they think they need the power to do that. And then the verse four, we read again, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, let me pause there for a second. Notice the irony of this verse. The beginning of the verse says, Jesus knew all that would happen. Jesus knew everything, right? Jesus was a know-it-all, not the snobbish know-it-all, like a loving know-it-all, but Jesus was a know-it-all. He knew everything that was going to happen, everything, okay? And then at the end of verse four, it says, Jesus asked them, who do you seek? See, the question is, why did Jesus ask this question if Jesus knew all that was going to happen? Why did he ask them? Well, so this dialogue could take place as we continue to read. Verse five, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. Jesus had poured his life into Judas for three years. For three years, Jesus had taught, loved, cared for Judas. And yet now Judas had come and with a kiss, with a sign of respect saying, Rabbi, He betrays his Savior. For three years, Jesus, excuse me, for three years, Judas followed Jesus physically, but never followed him in his heart. Judas walked with the disciples, talked with the disciples, looked like one of the disciples, but he never was really a disciple of Jesus. There are always Judases amongst God's people in the church. 
For many years, I was a Judas. I grew up in the church. I thought I was a Christian. I thought I was a disciple of Jesus, but I did not know Jesus. I never surrendered my life to Jesus. I betrayed Jesus time and time again by chasing after other substitute saviors. There are always Judases amongst the people of God who, who talk the talk, who walk the walk, but who really do not trust and follow Christ. They look like disciples. They sound like disciples, but they are not disciples. Maybe you're here today and you've been going to church for a while, maybe your whole life. And you have walked and talked with the disciples of Jesus. You have, you have portrayed to others that you are disciples of Jesus. But deep down inside, you know you have never surrendered your life to him. You have never entrusted him with your salvation for maybe a number of reasons. Maybe you're scared, maybe pride. Judas's case, greed was a part of it. In Matthew 27, we see the result of a false disciple of Jesus. In Matthew 27, we see the, the end of Judas's life. We read that Judas changed his mind and brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. That was the money they gave to him to betray Jesus. Saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And then it says, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed and he went and hanged himself. Judas found out in most horrific ways, being an imitation disciple of Jesus only leads to misery, despair, and destruction. Friends, if you are here today and you are an imitation disciple of Jesus, if you just walk the walk and, and, and you talk the talk and try to fool everybody, but you have not surrendered your life to Christ, let this be a warning to you. Let Judas be a warning to you to surrender everything you have to Christ. That you might know the joy of salvation instead of the misery and despair and destruction of being a false disciple of Christ. So this is the plight of Jesus. Jesus was betrayed not only by Judas but by these hundreds of other men and, and thousands of men and women throughout history. But this, even in this betrayal, what what shines brightly is the power of Jesus. Now, it may not look like Jesus is all that powerful here. People come out, they arrest him, they lead him away. But look at verse four with me. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember when I said how verse 4 has this paradox because at the beginning it says Jesus knows everything. And then at the end, Jesus still asks the question, whom do you seek? And he asks this to lead to a dialogue. Well, we see what the dialogue is here. Jesus asks them, who do you seek? They say Jesus of Nazareth. So that Jesus can respond with two simple words. Ego, a me. Which in English means I am. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that these words carry a great deal of weight. Uh, we're first introduced to this title, I am, back in Exodus chapter 3. When God comes to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I have seen the misery, I have seen the suffering of my people, I have, I have heard their cries and I have come to deliver them. 
And Moses says, well, who are you? Like, what, who's your name? What's your name? What should I tell him your name? What does your family call you? What is your intimate name? And we read in Exodus 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in the, 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 the Hebrew text, this, this term I am is also translated as Yahweh. And it, it's been seen as such a, a title of reverence that, that for hundreds of years, thousands of years, they would not even speak the name Yahweh or I am. One scholar puts it this way. He says, the divine name, the I am, has been deemed to be too holy and sacred to be uttered for concern that one might misuse the name, even unintentionally. Thus, for centuries, religious authorities have sought to protect the name from being abused by not permitting the actual name to be spoken, but always deferring to other generalized honorific terms. Even to this day, some conservative religious authorities only refer to Yahweh by saying Hashem, which means the name. Reluctant to utter or even write at times the divine name is not just due to sentimentality. Some people believe that the name must never be used in a common way. And in order to conserve its sacredness, they forbid mentioning it at all. And so this is the atmosphere that Jesus is operating in. He's operating in an atmosphere where people do not say the name of God. They don't speak the name of God. Matter of fact, at one point in time when they were translating the scriptures, if, if the name Yahweh came up, the, 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 the transcribers would take a bath before and after writing down the name Yahweh because it was such a sacred name. And yet here, Jesus blurts it out so casually. They say, we have come to rest Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And not only does he say it so casually, he claims it for himself. He says, I am the God of the universe. I am the living God who has delivered the people out of bondage and slavery and sin. And I've come to do it again. I've heard their cries. I've heard their pleas. The I am has come to rescue God's people. Now, do you notice how the Jews and the Romans respond to Jesus claim. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back, literally went backwards and fell to the ground. Could you imagine being there? How awesome would this be? I mean, I think of a movie where like a bomb explodes, right? And the energy just, just, just washes over everyone. Everyone falls to the ground. And this scene, Jesus is giving just a sliver of his divinity, a beam of light through a crevice showing his glory and no one can stand. Remember, these are Roman soldiers, the most powerful, courageous men in the entire world and they drop to their knees. We see this throughout scripture. Whenever someone gets a glimpse of, of the sliver of the glory of God, they fall to their knees. In Ezekiel 4, he says, and I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the, of the Lord and I fell on my face. In Matthew 17, 6, when the disciples uh, heard the voice of God during transfiguration, it says they fell on their faces and were terrified. If you remember, when Saul was traveling to Damascus to persecute Christians, we read that as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone on him and he fell to the ground. 
And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. And then my favorite one in Revelations chapter 1. John sees one like the Son of Man talking about Jesus. And it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) This is what happens when people get a glimpse of the glory of God. It paralyzes them. It puts them on the ground. And so let me ask, who do you think was in control of this situation? Who had the power? You know, it's, it's, you may or may not know this, but Pastor Chad, Pastor Chad served here before Pastor Jonathan, and we sent him to go plant the church on the east side, and, uh, and he was quite a prankster. You may or may not know this about him, but I remember one time we were in our offices at Lindquist Machine before we had this building, and I was, I can't remember the whole situation, but I was walking down the hallway, and Pastor Chad popped out and went, ah! And all I did, I don't know what happened, but I went and kung fu more. I went, ah! And I like, I'd never taken a day of karate in my life, but for some reason I went into this kung fu mode. Maybe because I love kung fu panda, I'm not sure. But even today, he makes fun of me. Like, he, hey, Dan, right? Like, because that's how, that's what happens when I got freaked out. I'm curious, have any of you been so startled that you literally fell down? Anybody? This is a legitimate question. One person, okay. Come up and share your story. No, I'm just kidding. So, Mike, too. It doesn't happen much, right? And here you have the most powerful men in the world dropping to their knees as if they are dead because Christ for a minute flexes his divine muscles just so all of us will know who's in control in the midst of this horrific situation. I wonder how many of you here today need to know this for yourself. How many of you are going through a horrible situation either relationally financially, spiritually. You're going through a horrible situation. It seems like nobody is in control. God is in control. He's not the author of evil, but make no mistake, he is glorious, he is holy, he is powerful. And if, it's he, if he's in control of this horrific tragedy in which they take an innocent person and put him to death, could it be that he's in control of your situation as well? And so in this passage, we, we see, again, we see the, the plight of Jesus. We see the, the power of Jesus. And finally, we see the passivity of Jesus. Theologians, when they talk about the obedience of Christ, they often talk about the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. And both of these are supremely important to God's story of redemption. The active obedience of Christ refers to his perfect submission to God's law throughout his life. Uh, an illustration of this is when he goes out into the wilderness and for 40 days, uh, he doesn't sin. He doesn't follow the, 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 the temptations of Satan. Um, unlike the people of God uh, who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, caved into sin all the time. Jesus did not. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness. He was sinless and perfectly obedient in thought, word, and deed in all that he did. This was the active obedience of Christ, which is important because he had the righteousness that we needed, which we'll get in a little bit. But Christ was not only actively obedient, Christ was also passively obedient. 
meaning that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father and, and therefore to the will of, of wicked men who wanted to arrest him and lead him away to be killed on a cross. And so one way to think about it is Christ's active obedience is, is what Christ did and his passive obedience is what he did not do in obedience to God's will. What he could have done, but didn't do. So for example, just a quick example. If I tell my kids to clean their room, and by God's grace, they clean their room, okay? That is active obedience, okay? If I tell my child, sit in that chair and don't move, that's passive obedience, okay? They're, they're, they're staying, they're not, they're not doing, they're just staying where they're supposed to be, Okay? And it's hard for children to do that, right? It's hard for us to practice passive obedience. I mean, you know, the, the scriptures say don't complain about anything. Like when you watch a, 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 a sports event, is, is it hard to, to exercise passive obedience, not jump up and say, you blew the call, what are you doing, right? Like it's passive obedience is what is highlighted in this passage, Christ's perfect passive obedience. So look at verse seven with me. So, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And so here we see the passive obedience of Christ and that he is saying, I'm here, take me, I will go with you. Jesus could have escaped in a million different ways. I mean, who can't see, you know, 600 men coming out of Jerusalem with lanterns, right? And he knew all that was going to happen. I mean, if he really wanted to hide from Judas, who he knew was going to betray him, would he really have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane where they went all the time? I mean, Jesus was embracing the betrayal that was about to come and he submitted himself to it and he passively received the persecution of these people. And so Christ passively said, take me. But then we get a glimmer of, of the reason for his passive obedience. He said, take me, but let these men go. Take me, the innocent one, bind me, lead me away, put me to death. But these other men, let them go free. And so that's good news for the apostles. But what about you and me? Look at verse 10. So since Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. And I love this part. It's as if Jesus is saying, let's go through this again, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus was not only passive to the will of God, thus the will of men, but he was passive to the cup of the Father. If you can keep your finger here in John 10 and flip back a couple books to Matthew, uh, chapter 26, it's page, let me see here, I have it, page 832 in the Red Bible. So Matthew chapter 26. I think it's important for us to see this. When Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup? Um, there, there's, there's some story that comes before that. So in Matthew 26, it's the same event before Judas comes into the garden. Jesus is crying out to the Father. Verse 39, we read about it. Matthew 26, 39. We read, and going a little farther in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then um, skip down to verse 42. 
He says again, it says again for a second time, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, talking about the cup, he says, your will be done. Now what's so interesting in the gospel of Luke, so we have this story in in many of the different gospel accounts, is that we learn that as Jesus is praying for the father to take away the cup, as he's meditating on this cup, whatever this cup is, Jesus actually starts sweating blood. Um, There's actually a medical term for it, and I will try to pronounce it. It's called hematohydrosis. Close enough, you won't know the difference. But if you look on WebMD, it actually describes it. It says that hematohydrosis is a very rare medical condition that causes you to ooze or sweat blood from your skin. It goes on and says, doctors don't know exactly the triggers of hematidrosis, in part because it's so rare. They think it could be related to your body's fight or flight response. It says, tiny blood vessels in the skin break open. The blood inside them may get squeezed out through sweat glands. And then it concludes saying, it seems to be caused by extreme distress or fear, such as facing death or torture. So here's the question. Jesus was never afraid of anybody. Why is Jesus so afraid here? You know, why is it that that Jesus prays not once but twice for the Father to take the cup from him, but his will be done? Why is it that Jesus is so overwhelmed with the anxiety of this cup that he's actually starting to sweat blood? Well, it's because of what the cup represents, what is in the cup. What is in the cup is the cup of God's wrath. This would have been a familiar term for those Jews. Throughout the Old Testament, there are times where God poured out his cup of wrath on God's enemies who had attacked God's people. Probably the strongest description of the cup of wrath is found in Revelation 14. It says this, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's Wrath. And then listen to this. The description is so powerful and painful. He says, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the land, the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. You know, hell is a subject that nobody wants to talk about if they actually have half of an understanding of what hell is. It's not enjoyable to talk about at all. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus talks about hell, matter of fact, more than he talks about heaven. Hell is what Jesus dreaded. You see, there's this misconception about hell, and I hear this all the time. What I hear is hell is the absence of God. Have you ever heard that? You've probably said it. I've said it. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. God is even in hell. Even in this passage, it says, in the presence of the Lamb, which is Jesus. God is everywhere. And so hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the absence of the grace and mercy of God and the existence of his justice and wrath for all eternity. This is what Jesus saw in the cup, the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And he said, Lord, if there's any other way, If there's any other way to accomplish this redemption, take this cup from me because it is horrific. And yet when you step into the garden, 
you know there is no other way. Because here comes Judas and the soldiers to arrest Jesus. You see, friends, the, the, the cup of God's wrath that Jesus took upon himself at the cross is the cup that you and I deserve for our sin. And if we give him our cup, he drinks of it on our behalf and he gives us a cup of what, what the Psalms call the cup of salvation. And we are clothed in his righteousness. This is the beautiful picture of the passivity, the passive obedience of Christ, that he would submit himself to mere men to be murdered. Uh, uh, It's interesting because actually in another gospel, when, when Peter cuts off the right man's ear, Jesus actually says to Peter, he says, do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, one angel would be enough, but 12 legions of angels, that's 60,000 to 100,000 angels to come and take care of the situation. Jesus says, I could totally wipe them out. But through his passive obedience to the Father, he went forth to the cross to fulfill the scriptures and to win back his church. How great is the love of Christ. How painfully wonderful the passive obedience of Jesus, who like a lamb led to the slaughter, went and died on our behalf. Let me end with this story. There's, there's a story, you may have heard it before, but there's a story of an Indian tribe that was going through a, a horrible a famine, a drought, and the, the tribal members started stealing food from one another. And the chief knew that if this continued, that it would just devolve and, and it would go really bad. And so he brought all of the people together. And he said, listen, if anybody is caught stealing, you're going to be uh, tied to the post in the center of the city. And you are going to be flogged in front of everybody. Well, the next day came around and sure enough, a thief was caught. And so they got uh, the person ready who would, who would do the whipping. I still don't know what that, I tried to guess the whipper. I don't know what they were called. But, um, but had that person come and the person was brought forward who was stealing from others. And when that person was brought forth, lo and behold, it was the chief's mom. And she was an elderly woman and he loved his mom and he cared for his mom. And so the chief was in this, this great conundrum. Like, what does he do in this situation? You know, he, he wants to be just. He wants to carry out the punishment that he said would come if someone stole from another person. But he loves his mom. His mom took care of him his entire life. And she's elderly, so through this beating, she could potentially die. The healing would be very difficult for her. And so there he is. He's stuck in this problem. How can I be just and still be loving? And so he, he calls the, the, the man to come forward, and he has him tie his mom to the post, that's commanded. And has the man back up with the whip. And the chief comes and he puts his arms around his mother and commands the man to start the lashing in front of all of the people. And he stood there passively taking the punishment for his mother's sin. He did not turn around and punch the guy. He stood there passively receiving what his mother deserved. Friends, this is a picture of the cross. That Christ hung upon the cross passively. He allowed himself to be crucified. He was in complete control. He allowed himself to be crucified to take the punishment for your sin and 
for mine. One final thought that just occurred to me as I, as I prepared this sermon that was just so interesting to me. You know, we have, for some reason, the Bible seems to be a story of gardens, but we had a garden at the beginning, right? And at the beginning, man betrayed God. And do you know what the result of that betrayal was? It was the death of mankind. But now we are in a garden again. And there is another betrayal of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And do you know what the result of that was? The death of God and the life of all who trust in him. Friends, which garden are you in? Have you trusted in Christ for your salvation? Know the plight of Jesus who is both just and loving. Believe the power of Jesus who conquered sin and death and hell. Trust in the passive obedience of Jesus who died upon the cross to absorb the penalty for our sin to give us the cup of salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your plan of salvation from eternity past, revealed to us in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. And Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you came to accomplish that salvation, to carry that salvation out, that you did not shrink back from the plan of God, that although you did not want the cup, you wanted us more. God, as we turn to your table, we come to eat the bread and drink from a cup. Lord, this cup is not a cup of wrath for those who trust in Christ because Christ already took the cup of wrath on our behalf. But this is a cup of salvation and a cup of blessing. Let us receive it with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.